So we are embarking on a short series on fasting. And last week and this week, I was wanting to sort of establish the, the context in which we fast, um, which would be our understanding of the actual role of the human body in our spirituality. Um, we are a people of a faith that believes in material futures, not sort of immaterial ideas. And the more we look at scripture, the more we discover that actually faith is about being in bodies, doing things with our bodies, with attention to God. And so as we talked last week about the idea that he's dead but he won't lie down, we realized that something spiritual has happened um, that means that we have actually died to sin. When we came to follow Christ, um, what he has done is imputed to us, which is a theological word, it's a good one. It means that what he has done um, pays off in our lives. So that in a very real sense, when he died, we are seen to have died to sin. He was dying a death that would give him victory over sin and death. And then we live a Christian life as though we are living dead people, which is what Romans 12 talks about. This morning, I want to take us all the way to the end of the understanding of how the human body is involved in our spirituality um, by coming actually a little bit into Paul's writings in Corinthians, where he gives us this, this end of a letter that is impassioned. Like, it's like he has saved up all the things that he really wanted to get to, and he unloads them in one fell swoop at the end of First Corinthians. So we're going to look there this morning, and I hope it will not be overwhelming for you. My thought is that um, even though we say we believe in bodily resurrection and an existence in human bodies in the future, we actually tend to be more like the Greeks than the Hebrews in the way that we think about what's going to happen after this. So how many of us really have a notion about when we leave this body, we kind of fly away? I, a lot of times at funerals, I'm interested in the eulogies that people talk about. And often they will say that God needed a new flower in his garden. And inside of me, I want to go, are you kidding? What a nonsensical thing to say. But you don't. You say, oh, that's lovely. Or God needs a new angel, or there's a new star in the sky. And our, our sort of popular understanding of Christianity is that when this life is over, we go away somewhere, right? We, we go somewhere else. It's not here. Um, it's somewhere that's a bit nebulous to us, and maybe it's in the clouds or that sort of thing. And the Christian faith actually calls for more than that. And I think we have, um, as, as we have matured, I think, in our understanding of the future of our planet and the future kingdom of God, not being something that is nebulous and off in the skies, but the future that we are looking for for this earth is a renewed earth, like the same earth made new. 
So in Revelation, there's a very significant little phrase that talks about the fact that God has made all things new. It doesn't say he's made all new things, right? And the subtle difference is, is very, very important that we're not looking for this world to pass away into oblivion and something else come in its place, but we're looking for the renewal of this very earth. Similarly, we are looking for not the human body becoming a non-entity, but rather we're looking for a future that we're not sort of angels looking over everyone else or stars or flowers. We're looking for a real human existence that we will physically, individually continue into the future. And when I think about those two ideas, that the planet itself is being renewed and we ourselves are being renewed, um, it gives me something to look forward to that's a bit more tangible. I mean, I don't know if you were encouraged um, by the thought of playing a harp and singing songs with the angels in the clouds. Or as a kid, did you think like heaven was going to be kind of boring? I remember the first time somebody told me they thought that, that there would be skiing in heaven. That's a brand new thought to me. And I thought, man, if they have better hills than BC and hell, why not want to go there? But again, this, this whole idea that we sort of see creation and we see our own physical bodies as coming to an end. And then after that, we're just not really clear on what it's going to be like. And the Bible is very clear. And so we find in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. It's a long chapter, and it is filled with passion. I'd love you just to listen to it and see what's jumping out as you hear what this apostle is saying. Um, he's really worried that they've lost their grip on physical resurrection. He's really scared that they're believing that this life is all there is or that after this life is something that is immaterial or something that is just an idea or whatever has crept in. So here's what he's saying. I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the to twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive now. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believed. Now that is the simple and yet profound answer to the question, what is the gospel? Gospel is a word that simply means good news. And Paul says, I told you the good news. And if you believed it, and if you're standing in it, then you have been saved. And then he goes on and says, and here's what the good news is. 
and he gives the actual details of the message we are supposed to believe if we want to be thought of as people who have been saved. So th this is a pretty tight little piece of theology. But then he gets to his concern. He says, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's a glib little observation, right? If there's no resurrection of the dead, this is a joke, folks. That's how serious this is. That's how important it is that we do believe in resurrection of the dead. Because as Paul pushes this argument to the limit, he said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, as some of you are saying, then Christ has not been raised. And how is important, how important is it that Christ has been raised? It's one of the key parts of the very message of the gospel. He was crucified, buried, rose from the dead. And it was God who raised him from the dead. And you believed this, Therefore, you're claiming to be saved. Now, how can some of you say there is no such thing as resurrection? What might they have been saying? We're not quite sure. We don't know what the heresy was. But certainly, they lived in a Greek context where they were dualists, um, where spirit was good and matter was evil. And so they were saying, um, matter is evil, so the body that Jesus had um, cannot be considered as a good thing. So maybe he didn't have a real body, or maybe he just looked like he had a body, and he certainly was not physically raised as though that was important. So this heresy was creeping in, and apparently Paul was worried about it enough to say, you know what, this is at the heart of the gospel message. Follow along with me with what else he says. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. First fruits is simply the first of the harvest. The first fruits is that which we first of all harvest, and it indicates that it is of the kind of the rest of the harvest. So whatever the first fruits are gives us the character, the indication that a harvest is coming and what sort of a harvest it's going to be. So he says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 
For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Don't you wish Paul was your pastor and you were listening to this stuff every week and he was exercised by this and he's like explaining things down to the slightest nuance. He says, um, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they baptized for them? And we go, yeah, good question. Who was getting baptized for the dead? We don't know. So presumably, um, some people died and there was worry that they weren't people of faith or they hadn't demonstrated that by baptism. So there may have been proxy baptisms that people will say, well, I'll be baptized in place of the person who died so that they go to heaven. And Paul says, well, if you want to play out that scenario, if there's no resurrection, why are they baptized for the dead? It makes no sense. So he has a philosophical argument. He has a practical argument. And he goes on, he says, why are we in danger every hour? He says, basically he's saying, why would I risk my life if this is not true? So this is not true, says Paul, if there is no resurrection. If there is only from our faith an ideological framework, not an actual future, then what I talk about is just nonsense. I'm wasting my time. You're believing stuff that is nonsensical. Um, we are, of all people, to be most pitied. Anyway, he says, um, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And here's Paul's um, style and his attitude. He says, you fool. So like, raise a straw man and call that straw man an idiot. That, that's Paul's style, so. There you go. If you didn't like him, there are lots of people who don't like him. He's, he's pretty forthright. So um, he says, well, if you come up with this argument, you're an idiot. My, it sounds more like my sons than the apostle, but there we go. He says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives us a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. 
Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Almost done. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So that's getting at the question, well, okay, you can say as much as you want that there is a continued physical existence. But what is that going to be like? Um, and Paul says, well, clearly it's different. But to say that it is different is not to say that it does not exist or that it is something vastly, vastly different that you could not possibly conceive of. So he begins to make some comparisons and says, well, as you know, the body that you're now living in is this, and the future body is this. And so he gives us several comparisons. He says, I, I, I say this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So perishable is describing us now. Imperishable is describing the new body that we will receive, that we will inhabit. Perishable means just what it means on the grocer's shelf, shelf right? Um, something is perishable when it only has a certain shelf life, and after that, it's, you know, you needed to use it before this date. So Paul says that's not what the new body is going to be like. It's going to be imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. You go, yeah, it is a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. That's not a plaque in a church nursery, by the way. I've seen them. Right. What does that mean? Paul uses the term sleep, and he uses it as an euphemism. So a euphemism is when you use a word to soften its blow, right? So there are several situations in life where we might do that sort of thing. And death is one of those. Um, we will say things like, he has passed away, he has fallen asleep, and various other things. When Paul uses the euphemism sleep for death, he doesn't use it because he's afraid of using the hard word. He uses it because it is more theologically accurate than to say, we die. It is more true of the person who dies in Christ that she or he has fallen asleep than it is that that person has ceased to exist, as death would, would seem to connote. So Paul says, I want you to know that we will not all sleep, so presumably the inference there is that some of us will sleep, some of us will die, and what does that mean? Well, he says, well, what you need to know is that we won't all die here. Some of us will be changed. And he goes on and says how this will happen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. So there's that word again. And this mortal is going to be changed. He says, this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. So the body that we now live in is mortal. I will die. So will you. And I've spent most of my life denying that fact. So have you. So do we. But the fact is we will die. We're mortal. And the new body that we're going to receive is immortal. It will not ever die. Now, the difference between the body that we have and the body that we're going to have 
is that sin has been expunged from the human existence. So it is the reason, sin is the reason, the fallenness of our world is the reason that all of the characteristics of human life are true and need to be replaced. So Paul goes on and says, this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. There. That's 1 Corinthians 15. It's massive. It contains um, a whole theology, a whole anthropology, uh, a whole eschatology. It, it goes right to the heart of what we believe and then draws it out as to its application in the afterlife. So we're, we're left with a whole orthodoxy that says we are not dualists. Um, we don't become something else completely in nature. We don't become somebody else. We stay who we are. But sin will have been expunged, and all of the things that limit us will have been removed, and we will live continually as human beings. So I think we, we get to kind of explore that and say, well, what did that mean? Um, what does it mean not to just be in a heavenly choir in the clouds, but to actually have individual existence, physical existence, bodily existence? Like, how old will we be? Can I choose my age? You know, like, what was the perfect age? Um, we're told things like, in heaven, there's neither male nor female, so... You know, what is that going to be like? Um, things will be different, but things will be continuous. They will be, there will be a con contiguous existence from this life into the next one. The hinge is the power of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The hinge is that um, we who exist physically will be able to exist physically forever doing the kinds of things that human beings do physically. What will we get to do? I don't know. I mean, the, the, we'll be able to risk our lives if we're immortal, right? So I'm you know, jump off of 12 balconies, 12 stories high and say, it's okay. Now, presumably, we'll get more sense when we be when we're in the new life. But, but see, the point is, as we approach the topic of fasting, what we're doing is going after the kind of the engine of human bodily existence. So last week we talked about the fact that spiritually we are dead. We're dead to the, the promptings, the stimulations of sin. And we need to live that way. We need to live practically that way. We need to discover that we actually don't want to sin. The life that we really want is the life that God wants for us. The life that will delight us is the life that God wants for us. It is not a burdensome life. It's not a life full of laws. It's a life of freedom. 
And so we live into that in the bodily existence that we have now, sometimes by making the body surrender. Because the body has uh, an old program that it reverts to, and we need to break that program. And sometimes a discipline like fasting is a way to do that, is to stop the desires, to replace them, to discover the proper desires and the lively desires that we actually do have. And then, as we live forward, we can say goodbye even to the temptation because the actual presence of sin as a stimulant will not be in, in our existence at all. So I have, I will not bore you with this, but just show you that I've gone through um, the, all of the argument of 1 Corinthians 13. And when, when Paul starts by, by sort of asking the question, is there resurrection? And you see there how he gets to the answer and why he gets to the answer. And then he posits that Christ has risen because the possibility would be if there's no resurrection, then Christ didn't rise. How important would that be to our faith? Crucial. Paul says if he did not rise, we've got nothing, folks. We bring nothing to the table. And then he says, well, somebody's asking, how are the dead raised? And he says, good question, but I'm going to call you a fool as I try to answer it. Of course we're not going to be like this. But he tells us all the things that we will be, all the ways that we will not be the physical existence um, that we currently are. Um, I, I want to tell you the story of a, of a, of a dear friend who died. Um, so th this can be your two sermon series on death and mortality, and Andrew will take us into happier topics next week. So. My friend was named Fred. He, he was a pastor on my team at Bramley Baptist Church. And Fred was diagnosed with mesothelioma, which is the cancer um, that is caused by ingesting asbestos. He had worked on construction when he was in university. So he was diagnosed with this disease. And he, day by day, would come to the office um, just coughing and struggling to breathe. And... Um, the disease was just, it, it gets to the point that it literally crusts your lungs and kind of suffocates you from the inside out. So it was a terrible disease. And as we walked with Fred through this, um, several people suggested to him that, that he would be welcome to ask for prayer from the elders for his healing. And when several of us suggested that to Fred, he, he each time said, no, I just don't. I don't feel led to that. I don't feel that God is giving me that opportunity or option. So along the way, he had a, a doctor's visit, and the doctor was proposing an, a new regimen of, of drugs. Um, and Fred said, well, what will that do for me? And the doctor said, I think it will give you three months more of life. And Fred said, well three months more of life, and life is not very bearable at this point. At, at that time, we were in a study in the book of Amos, and for some reason, um, Fred landed on the verse that said, seek God and live. And he felt as though that was the word from the Lord, that he ought to ask the elders to pray for him. So we fasted and prayed for Fred. And 
in, in the subject of fasting, there have not been many times, but this was one of two very blatant times that I think fasting um, was a discipline that gave us access to the, to the will of God and to the power of God. So we fasted and we anointed Fred with oil. The oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit who will, will bring healing. And honestly, and it, this is on the record, the moment we prayed for Fred, his symptoms disappeared. Now, until then, Fred was a singer. He was a great big German guy, blonde, fit person. And he would sing out in this baritone voice. And he was also a trumpet player. And through the previous weeks of his disease, he could neither speak well, certainly not sing, could not play his trumpet. When folks arrived at church the following Sunday, Fred greeted them in the lobby playing his trumpet. It was glorious. And all of his symptoms, which were severe, absolutely disappeared for three months. At the end of three months, they came back in spades. And in reflecting with Fred on what that meant, his understanding was that God was saying to him, Fred, you know that I can heal you if I want to. And Fred's um, conclusion was that God's will was not for him to show us how to live, but for him to show us how to die. So there were several weeks of glorious uh, fellowship. We, um, we had a memorial service before he died for Fred. We sat him on the stage on a, on a chair, and we brought people from all over Canada that he had ministered to. And they all spoke to Fred, how he had been a blessing in their lives and how, what he had done for their families through Fred's ministries. And Fred was a giving, serving, great pastor, great pastoral visitor. Um, and Fred sat there and drank it in, um, enjoying um, people just bearing testimony to how God had used him. But his symptoms were back uh, in spades. And Fred was dying. So his wife Helga said, Fred, we need to plan your funeral. And he said, no, you don't. That was my funeral. I don't need another funeral. And it was the most glorious thing. But it gave me the opportunity to walk with someone who was dying and who was willing to understand how God would use him in his dying, not in his living. And he said, what I discovered in those three months of being symptom-free, I discovered something that was a taste of what it would be like when I receive a new body, when it is the First Corinthians 15 body. And he said, it gave me such delight to have those months to be able to say, well, the last few weeks may be very, very painful. The last Three, the, next, the last three weeks that I will have may indeed show me the impact of the fall of our world and the fall of our lives. But these three months have shown me what's on the other side. And I give glory to God for that. That's what this is about. This is about understanding that the Christian faith is a faith lived in a body. It's about a faith that lives in a body that will die, 
but it's a faith that lives in a body that will die and then be recreated in a way that is familiar to the first body, but is rid of the sin, the fall um, that, that we are plagued with. So my memory of, of Fred is a wonderful memory. It's a delight um, to just go back and remember all of the things that people said. Um, remember that when we actually had his funeral service and when we actually buried him and said the words we say from 1 Corinthians 15, we were flooded with memories of those three months where Fred got a taste of what he now would fully experience on the other side. That's what we believe. We don't believe about a cool idea. We believe in physical continuous existence with sin rid from our lives and our world. That's what we believe, says Paul. That's what you believe if you claimed that the gospel was true for you.